When you and I first came to Jesus Christ and we gave our lives to him in submission and for salvation and we were born again, whether we knew it or not, each of us was enrolled into the University of Philippi. And you say, well, what in the world is the University of Philippi? Well, the mission statement of that university is told to us in the letter to the Philippians Chapter 1, verse 6, where the Apostle Paul said, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. And when you and I gave our lives to Christ, God enrolled us in his university where he began a work in our lives to conform us into the image and nature of his son, Jesus Christ, and to perform and perfect in our lives the things that he knew that we needed in order to prepare us for life on earth and also eternity in heaven. As we study in the book of Genesis the life of this man Abraham that's so carefully recorded for us in the scripture, what we have before us is the very first student that was ever enrolled in that university and that graduated successfully, making his way from start to finish as God perfected the work that he began in Abraham's life. And so what Abraham's life becomes for us and his testimony on the pages of Scripture is that he is more or less a student advisor or a guidance counselor for you and me that now find ourselves in that school wherein God is now doing a work within our lives. Now, as with any university that that any person would ever go to at any time, there are both elective courses, that is, things that we are interested in, things that the university or the school offers that we take up for our own enjoyment or for our own interest, things that we want to do. And then there are also required courses. Those are the ones that we're going to take whether we like it or not because those are the essential things that are going to prepare us for our future, why we're there in the first place. And so it also is in the University of Philippi. God, in the work that he's doing in our lives, he does have electives. There are things that we learn, that we go through, and that really we accept, we embrace, because we enjoy those things, you know, our gifts, our callings, the things about God that interest us that we want to learn about in whatever way he seems fit. Those are the electives. But there are also in this Salvation University required courses that we are going to take whether we like it or not. And usually when we're in those classes, we would choose or not. We don't want to necessarily go through some of the things that God takes us through in order to teach us, to prepare us, and change us in the ways that he knows that we need to be changed. In our study of Abraham, we have seen that he is now in the land that God had called him into. He was born in a province of Babylon called Ur of the Chaldees. Something stirred within his heart. There was a call of God for him to leave and to go to a land that God would show him. He left and stopped for a few years in a place called Haran. And he wasted time there waiting for his dad to die. And then finally, in obedience to God, he left Haran... And he came then into the land of Canaan, the land that God had called him into, where God gave him a very clear word, a very clear promise for his future. He said, Abraham, this is the land that I'm going to give you. And I'm going to bless you in this land, and I'm going to form of you a great nation. And then God said that in your seed, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. That is, I'm going to use your descendants to bring the world its savior, Jesus Christ, who would ultimately come through the seed and lineage of Abraham. So Abraham is now in this land, and he's in the plan of God, the purpose of God that God has for his life, and God has led him there, and thus now the work of God commences in Abram's life, and God is going to finish the work that he began in Abram's life. And in our study tonight, we're going to see Abram go into one of the required courses that every child of God will go through that finds themselves walking with him 
and enrolled in his school. And so as we pick up here in verse 10, we're told that there was a famine then in the land. That is the land of Canaan that God had called Abraham into. There was a drought. There was a necessity. There was a drying up of the rain. There was a lack of crops and of food and of provision. There was a crash in the economy. The businesses were drying up and things were looking bad. And in response to this, it says that Abram went down into Egypt to sojourn there for the famine was grievous in the land. That is, that it was extremely difficult for Abraham to work things out in the land of Canaan. Now, oftentimes when we think of Abraham at this point in his life and in his development and growth, we think of him as being a very small company. It's Abraham, it's his wife, it's his nephew Lot, and it's a few of their servants, but it's not so. We were told in the early part of this chapter that Abram left Haran with souls, that they had gotten souls. There were servants, there were friends, there were people that were traveling with Abram that were a part of his company, a part of what he would consider his household, though they weren't his immediate family. But they were people working with Abram and they were also dependent upon Abram and the success of his entire entity for their well-being and their survival. In the next chapter, we're going to read that when Abram's nephew Lot gets into trouble, Abram is going to arm 318 of his own servants, trained servants, his own militia, and go and rescue Lot from the danger that he finds himself in. So if Abram has 318 men that are specifically called his trained men, his militia, and there are souls that came with them from Haran, the company that Abram is responsible for at this time is probably at least 500 in number. So it isn't accurate for us to just think it's just him and his wife and his nephew and a few others that he's responsible for. Abraham has a huge responsibility on his shoulders at this time of people that are looking to him for their provision, for their survival. Now, in light of this, we're told that he's been led by God into this land where he is to be blessed. A promise of blessing has come from God to Abraham in this time. And yet, though there's a promise, we see that there's a famine, that there's a drought. Now, for Abram, he would be completely dependent upon rain. He's a farmer. He deals with sheep and cattle and livestock. That's where the bulk of his provision is going to come from. And so for, in order for them to be healthy and for them to produce, they need to eat. And for them to eat, there needs to be crops. And for there to be crops, there needs to be rain. And thus Abraham is in a place where he is completely dependent on an abundant supply of rain in order for his just survival, much less his blessing and his prosperity. But we're told that there's a drought. And we're also told that that drought is severe, that it was very grievous for Abram to the point where it's serious, it's at a critical point, and there's a serious danger of his livestock and of his people not surviving at this place. And so Abraham, at this point in his journey, finds himself in a real jam. He's received a commandment from God, a call from God. God has led him into this land, the land of Canaan, and we know that God is serious about this call for Abram to be in this land because we know that when Abram was in Haran, God didn't deal in Abram's life. God left Abram alone until Abram got himself into the place that God had called him to. Now Abraham is in that place and God is dealing in his life and God has told him to stay in that place. So he has a command of God to stay. Now, for Abram to disobey that command and to leave the land of Haran means that he's going to put at risk the call that God has for his life, the purpose, promise, and plan that God has for his life, and everything that God, that Abraham is searching for is now on the line should Abram choose to disobey the command of God to stay in the land that God had called him to in the midst of this famine. Now, on the other side of having that command of God, he also has at least 500 sets of eyes 
that are looking at him, wondering how it is that they're going to survive in the midst of this grievous famine. His livelihood, his reputation as a man is on the line. His business and everything that he's built up to this time is on the line. The confidence that his subordinates and his co-laborers have in him is on the line. And even his own common sense is telling him that what he's doing by staying in Canaan is absolutely foolish. And so he finds himself in a place where he has a command of God. And to obey means he's putting everything on the line. And to disobey, well, it's the easier choice, but it's to put the call of God in obedience to God on the line. Thus, what we have here is we have a man who's extremely conflicted. He heard God's voice so clearly. God had said to him, get out of this land, away from your father's house, into a land that I will show you. Then once he gets there, he hears the voice of God, the blessing of God promised upon his life. He had so clearly heard from God that this is the place that he's supposed to be. But he finds himself in a place asking himself the question, well, where is God now? God, you told me to come into this land and into this place. You brought me here. You spoke to me. You led me here. All these people are looking at me. Well, where are you? Why aren't you answering my prayers, God? Are you unable? Is this famine more powerful than your ability to provide for me in it? Do you need my help? God, maybe you're apathetic. Maybe you got me where you want me, but now you're too busy and you've got other things to do. And so you've left me here in this land now to fend for myself and it's not working. Or maybe Abram's thinking, God, have I grieved you in some way? Is this chastisement? Is this discipline? Is this some joke? I've obeyed you. I've come into the land and now I screwed up. So you're just going to leave me here to die. God, what in the world are you doing? Why is this famine happening? Why is this the case? What Abraham is in right now is one of the required courses that every single Christian, every single child of God will go through in their walk, relationship, experience with God. Abraham is being tested. Abraham is being tried. The fire is being put to him. Now, what's happening to Abraham happens to every single one of us. Jesus said... In Mark chapter 9, verse 49, he said that everyone will be salted with fire and every sacrifice will be salted with salt. Now, the first time I read that verse, I thought, what in the world does that mean? Every sacrifice will be salted with fire. Now, the sacrifice in the New Testament concept is you and me. We are the living sacrifice and we bring our lives to Jesus Christ. So we are the object of the sacrifice. And he says that that, uh, that sacrifice is going to be salted. That means something is going to be placed upon that sacrifice that is going to season it. It's going to bring out its flavor. It's going to do something in it and change its texture. It's going to change what it is. And then Jesus says that the object that's going to bring that change and that flavor extraction is fire. In the Bible, a symbol of the trial, the fiery trial that tests and tries us. So every sacrifice, that's us, is going to be salted, affected, changed by fire. And every sacrifice is salted with salt. Meaning what? Meaning that no one escapes the reality of being tested by fire and thus changed by that fire. In Matthew chapter 13, when Jesus was giving the parables of the kingdom of God, explaining what it's like to be a citizen, a member of God's family, he told the parable of the sower, and you guys know it well. I can't you know, rehash the whole thing. But he said that there was a sower that sowed, and some of the seed fell by the wayside. Some fell among stones, rocky ground. Some fell among thorns, and some fell on good ground, and each grew up and bore fruit respective to the kind of ground that it was sown upon. But when interpreting that parable, Jesus said concerning the seed that fell among the rocks, one of the four, he said that the seed immediately shot out some roots and began to grow up. But because there was no depths of earth, he said that when tribulation or persecution arose because of the word, they immediately were scorched and they fell away from him. 
He didn't say that one-fourth of all the Christians are going to experience trials and tribulation. No, he said when tribulation or persecution arise because of the word. Why? Because it's not a choice. Oh, Lord, I choose not to suffer. You can do that to those that are strong enough to bear it, but Lord, I choose. I don't want to take this elective class of going through suffering trials. And God says, I'm sorry. If you're in the school, guess what you take freshman year? And then again, sophomore year. And and then again, junior year. And then you write your senior thesis on it. And then you do this as your practicum. (laughs) You know, and these are your residences. This is what you're going to go through. Whether you like it or not, you're going to go through trials because that's what we all go through. I find it interesting that even Jesus himself, that after he was baptized by John the Baptist, and he came up out of the water and he had this amazing experience where the heavens opened up, the Spirit of God descended upon him in the form of a dove, and the voice of the Father came from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That immediately following that experience, it says that Jesus was led of the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested or tempted by the devil for 40 days. That even Jesus, the Son of God, who paved the way of salvation and walked the same path that he calls us into, he himself went through the test or the trials of going through tests. Now, we have an advantage that Abraham didn't have. And that is that we have 4,000 years of Bible history to draw from to see that this is not an uncommon thing. But for Abraham, he's the first one. He's the trailblazer, the first student in this school. And now he's going through a situation where he's being tested in a grievous way beyond what he thinks that he can handle. Well, you ask the question and you say, I hear what you're saying. And I've been walking with the Lord for a little while, so I've experienced some of what you're saying. But why? Why in the world is it that we have to go through trials that are grievous? Why do we have to go through tests like Abraham went through, where on one side he's facing obedience to God, and on the other side he's facing destruction in the flesh if he obeys God? Why do we have things that are so incredibly complex like that that we have to go through? Is God sadistic? Is this some kind of an experiment where he's just looking to see how we'll handle it when he pours salt on a slug, so to speak? What in the world is God doing? Why does he do it? Does he not know whether or not I'm going to pass this test? And if he does know that I'm going to fail the test, then why doesn't he just leave me alone in the first place and not even choose me? No, the Bible tells us that God already does know whether or not we're going to pass or fail the test. And yet God sends the test anyways. You say, well, what is the sense of that? Why do we have to go through these tests and trials that come from God? Two reasons. Number one, because tests and trials in our lives as Christians reveal our motives and the depth of our commitment. Our tests and trials reveal our motives. What do I mean by that? What is the reason why you are a follower of God through the person of his son, Jesus Christ? Why are you born again? Why are you sitting here tonight? Why are you following him? What's the reason? What's the motive behind it? Second half of that, what is the depth of your commitment? Regardless of why you're following him, how deep does the commitment go? You say, well, I'll follow you, God, this long and this far, but if things get to this point, or if you do this or allow this to happen in my life, then I'm not going to follow you anymore. And so God allows trials and tests to come into our, our lives in order to reveal to us our motives and the reason why we're following him, and also to reveal, not to him, because he knows already, but to us What is the reason and the depth of our commitment to him? Why it is that we're following him? Is your Christian commitment tonight God-centric or is it self-centric? In other words, are you following him tonight because of who he is? Because of what he's done? Because of his godhood? Because of the love that he showed on the cross of Jesus Christ? Or... Are you following him tonight for a self-centric reason? 
meaning that it's something that you hope to get from following God, and God is the one who's going to fulfill or meet the need that you have that brought you to come to him tonight. Now, here's what I've learned and realized in my own trials and in the things that I've observed in my time in the faith, is that if a person comes to God and is following God only to have their needs met, oh Lord, I need peace. Oh Lord, I need deliverance from this situation. Oh Lord, I need provision and help in my life. Oh Lord, I need, and then you fill in the blank, whatever that need is. If that is the reason why a person comes to God and is following God, then it is only a matter of time before that person stops following God. And they're going to stop following God for one of two reasons. They're either going to stop following God because, number one, he doesn't meet that need. Well, God, I came to you expecting that you would, and you never did. You didn't prove yourself to be faithful, and so therefore I'm not going to follow you anymore because you didn't do the thing that I was expecting that you would do. And that person will fall away. That was a self-centric reason for following God. You want to know what the other reason is? Why someone who comes to God hoping to have their need met will walk away from God? You know what it is? It's because they do have their need met. God comes through. And the thing that they were hoping for, the thing that they were expecting, the reason why they began to follow in the first place, God answers the prayer. They get the job. They get the spouse. They get the health or their mental clarity back. Whatever it is that brought them to come to God, he gives it to them. But you know what happens? Human nature is such a funny thing, isn't it? Is that what happens to us as soon as a need or a desire in our lives is met? There's a new need or desire that comes. It's funny how we are, isn't it? As soon as we accomplish a goal or reach a level that we're seeking to reach, we don't rest content and say, well, now I can die happy because the thing that I was waiting for and hoping for has finally come to pass. We immediately just put it in our bag and say, well, now I've got this, this, and this, and what else do I need next? And we'll come to God now for a new need, something, well, you say, that's not true. That's, that's shallow. You know, I wouldn't do that if God met my need. Oh, yeah? Ask Solomon. Oh, Lord, I just want wisdom. I just want to be able to lead your people in and out and to be a wise leader. I don't know how to do it. I'm just a youth. Oh, Solomon, I'm going to give you wisdom. And not only that, but wait till you see what I'm going to do for you. A man whom God met his need. And you know what we find? Is that it was never, ever enough. After he had the wisdom and he could rule, then he needed more money than he would ever know how to spend. After he had that money, he needed more experiences and possessions. After he had that, he needed more hobbies and projects than he could fulfill his time with. After he had that, more kingdom, more territory, more influence, more power, unto a point where everything that he had obtained from God, from God, turned his heart away from God. Why? Because his reason for following God wasn't God. It was what God gives. And when a person is following God because of what God gives and not because of who God is, it's only a matter of time before their heart is turned away from God. And thus our trials reveal to us our motives and the reason for our coming and also the depth of our commitment. I think of Peter. He's just like we are. I think that's why God put him so much in the Bible. And what did Peter say? Jesus said, one of you is going to deny me tonight. You're going to turn away and walk with me no more. And Peter looked at Jesus and with all manner of sincerity, he was so genuine, he looked at him and he pulled him aside, probably grabbed him by the robe, and he said, Jesus, Lord, Though all men deny you, I will never deny you. I will die before I deny you. And Jesus didn't blink or flinch. He looked back at Peter, probably with a smile, and he said, Really, Peter? I know that before the cock crows three times, you're going to deny me three times. Before the morning. Oh, you're so committed? You're going to die for me? Really? A few hours later, things didn't hash out the way Peter had hoped. The presence of the Lord was no longer felt by Peter. Peter denied. And the one who said, I'll die with you, said, I'm going fishing. I'm going back to my leisure. I'm going back to my business. I'm going back to what I know to be stable. I'm out of here. 
This didn't work out the way that I thought that it should. It's just like us, isn't it? Our trials reveal the reason why we come and the depth of our commitment. Now, can I tell you a secret? I'm going to judge you. You're going to say, judge not lest you be judged. No, I'm going to judge you right now. I'm going to judge me too. Is that every single one of us that are here in some way, shape, or form come to God for self-centric reasons. That's part of the reason why all of us go through trials, because we need to see what's in our own hearts. But that brings me to the second thing that trials produce within our lives. Not only do they reveal to us our motives and the depth of our commitment, but they also remove the waste and change us even down to our motives and reasons why we do what we do. See, what we realize in our trials when we're under the weight of them and when we fail, spoiler, like Abraham is about to, when we fail in our trials and our tribulations, what we realize is not that God just found out I'm such a failure. What we realize is that God already knew that I was a failure. And now I can see what I was blinded to previously that I'm not what I thought I was. But in the process of that, we realize that he loved me even though he already knew that my commitment to him was shallow and that I'm a self-centered, egotistical, self-consumed, self-absorbed person. Yet he loved me and he died for me anyways and he chose me and he's working in my life in spite of how shallow and lame I am. And when we realize that he loves me in spite of me, what begins to happen over time is that my motive changes from being self-centric in the reason why I'm following to being God-centric. Oh Lord, when I came to you, it was because, but I'm staying in you because. Oh Lord, I was so foolish. But Lord, I see how much you love me. And I see what lengths you went to for me in sending your son to Calvary, even though you already knew everything that was in my heart. And Lord, I'm so sorry that it was for this reason and that in that trial I turned in this way. And Lord, I wish I could have that time back. Because now I see in me and in you things I never did before. Lord, you're so good. And so the trial reveals to me what I am, but it also removes the waste and it changes what I am inside. And that is the work that God is finishing until the day of Jesus Christ. And thus, we all go through trials. So Abraham goes through a trial, and it's a heavy one. And as we see, Abraham fails in the trial. Notice what happens in verse 11. It says that it came to pass that when he was come near to enter into Egypt, that he said unto Sarai, his wife, Behold now, I know that you are a fair woman to look upon. Therefore, it will come to pass that when the Egyptians see you, that they will say, this is his wife, and they will kill me, but they will save you alive. Say, I pray thee, that you are my sister, that it may be well with me for thy sake, and my soul shall live because of you. And so Abraham fails in the midst of this trial, and we're told that he now goes down to Egypt. He leaves the place that God had called him to, the place of blessing, and he goes to a place where he doesn't have to depend upon God for rain. In Egypt, the sun shines 365 days a year, but there is never a need for water or rain because the Nile Delta makes the land there fertile enough to be able to support a huge stock of cattle or livestock. And thus Abraham realizes if we go down to Egypt, then we can ride out this famine down there. We'll work the economy, we'll do business there, and when the famine ends, we'll then come back into this place that God has called us to. Now, the problem with that is that God didn't tell him to leave Canaan and go down to Egypt. This is a man who's operating on his own devices. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, it says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 3, 
we're told that if we commit our works unto the Lord, that is where we are, what we're doing, what's before us, if we commit our works unto the Lord, then he will establish our thoughts. Meaning that we're not to lean upon our own devices, wisdom, and understanding in how we deal with the things that come into our lives, but rather we're to trust him that he's in control and then commit our path and our works to him and then allow him to lead and direct us, whether it be by provision or by instruction telling us what we're to do and where we're to go. Now, Abraham didn't do any of those things. But he buckles under the pressure of this trial. He takes his position into his own hands. He takes everyone up and he now goes down into Egypt. He doesn't have to depend on God. He can depend on the world. He can depend on the natural resources of things to do it. His first step down is that he leaves the place of blessing. His second step down is that now that he has left the covering of God's protection and will, now he's confined to his own abilities, his own resources, and his own vision to get things done. And thus we see that before he even gets to Egypt, he's already scheming with Sarah as to how things are going to work. Hey, when we get down there, I know this is going to be a little bit weird. But look, you're 65 years old and you're a bombshell. And I know that when we get down there, they're going to see you. And when they get one look at you, if they find out that you're my wife, they're just going to kill me and take you as their own. So here's how we'll handle this. We'll lie. We'll stretch the truth a little bit. We find out later that Sarai is actually Abram's half-sister, that there is kind of a truth in this bold-faced lie that they're going to tell when they come to the borders of Egypt. And Abram says, if we just get through the gate with this story... Then once we get on the other side, everything will be okay, and we'll be blessed there. Things will go well with me for your sake. This is for you, Sarai. So we'll just lie. Isn't it amazing that once we step out of God's will and we begin to have to lean upon our own devices in a circumstance or in a situation, that now we have to go further outside of God's will to maintain ourselves in that circumstance and situation? See, not only is he relying on his own wisdom, oh, we'll go to Egypt, but now he's got to rely on worldly ways apart from the ways of God in order to survive there. He has to lie. Once he gets there, things slip completely out of his control. I sometimes picture what it's like for God to watch us in our trials, you know, when things happen and and he sees the things that we do and the, the messes that we get ourselves into. And I wonder what it was like for God, you know, to be sitting there and watching Abraham pick up this whole company of people and just leave Canaan so quickly and go down into Egypt. And he's got this whole thing worked out in his mind and everything's going to go according to plan. I can just picture Gabriel coming over and just saying to God, God, do you see what he's doing there? Yeah, I see what he's doing. He's leaving Canaan going. He's like, what are you going to do? Are you going to let him get away with this? No, I'm not going to let him get away with this. He's he's not going to get away with it. Yeah, but what are you going to do? Just watch, watch. This is going to be really really good because he thinks he's got all this under control he's got this by the tail this is all going to work out just fine he's got the perfect story but i'm going to throw him a curveball in just a minute just watch this one (laughs) now what abraham is no doubt thinking in all of this when he's telling sarah to lie and say that he's his sister and everything is he's thinking that when we get in there and, and we tell this lie that if it ever comes to pass that one of the egyptian men want sarah as their wife, that because I'm the brother, they'll negotiate with me over it, and that'll give us time to realize that we're in danger, and if we have to, we'll be able to leave. And so Abraham's thinking, I'm going to be able to control this whole situation because there'll be a whole negotiation process being that I'm her brother and not her husband. Now, it's kind of a flawed logic, isn't it? I mean, if if, if I'm the husband, they'll kill me and take you. So adultery is really bad, but murder is okay. You know, I mean, the whole thing is twisted, what's going on in Abram's mind, but he thinks he's got it all figured out. We'll be able to negotiate. What he wasn't expecting is what happened. (laughs) Notice what it says in verse 14. It says that it came to pass that when Abram was come into Egypt, that the Egyptians beheld the woman that she was very fair. The princes also of Pharaoh saw her, and they commended her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. 
And he entreated Abram well for her sake, and he had sheep and oxen, asses, men servants, maid servants, she asses, and camels. Now, here's the curveball that God threw at Abram is that it wasn't just a common man of Egypt that took a liking to Sarah's appearance, but that she was commended before the king himself, and he had the right to take her with no negotiation. And that's what he did. He sees the woman. He says, you, guys, get her, take her to me. She's, she's a single woman. She's not married to this man. And he says, now, I'm going to do way beyond for you, Abram, what you would have gotten out of any deal that you would have made with any other Egyptian citizen. And he greatly enriches Abram now with these seven things that are listed here for us in verse 16. What an amazing thing that just happened to Abram. He just lost his wife in order to make provision for his family. What an amazing thing that happens here. It's amazing also to me that outside of God's will, when we step outside of God's will, how greatly our value system can immediately change. In the early part of this chapter, God gave Abram a sevenfold promise. He said, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to make you a nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to enlarge you. I'm going to bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. I'm going to Make all the families of the earth to be blessed to you. A sevenfold thing that God said to Abraham there, and that was the thing that moved Abraham. It drove his life. Now that he's outside of the will of God and he's worried about how things are going to work out for him in the flesh, in the world, now notice the things that are of value to Abraham. The things that it lists for us there in verse 16. Seven things. Sheep, oxen, asses, men servants, maid servants, she asses, and camels. Those things meant nothing to Abraham previously. And now we see that he's willing to trade away some of the most valuable things in his life in order to get things that ultimately could never satisfy him before. Abraham is getting extremely rich, but in order to do it, he sold his wife. Now, the most amazing person in this entire narrative is this woman, Sarah, who is now taken from the fold of Abraham and brought into the harem of the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. To Abram, her name is Sarai. It means contentious, but she's his wife nevertheless. God's going to rename her Sarah, which means princess, meaning that to God, she's a princess. But to the Egyptians, she's a woman. It says that the woman was taken into Pharaoh's palace and she became part of his harem. To them, she's worth nothing more than what she is in the flesh. And Abraham loses that for the sake of seeing provision for his family. But in her, we see nothing but beauty. She's going to shine in the way that she handles and deals with this thing. She's going to mess up later, and Abraham's going to have to help her out. We'll see that in the further chapters as the story unfolds. But in this, she shines absolutely amazing. You ever wonder, what in the world is Sarai thinking at this point in the story? Okay, you lie so that it'll go good for me. I'll survive. We'll get rich. But don't worry about it. It's all going to be okay. Then she sees. She's brought into the palace. And now she's there. And she's being dressed in all this Egyptian garb. But Abraham's out there somewhere just enjoying everything that he's been given by Pharaoh. I mean, this thing has just gotten so crazy. But think about the woman. There's no record that God ever spoke to Sarai saying, get out of your house and your country and go to a land that I will show you. God never spoke to her. He will later, but he has not of yet. But yet, there was something that she saw in Abraham and in his faith that inspired her to follow when they left her of the Chaldees. They came to Haran. They experienced a little bit of stability. And again, Abram said to her and to the company, we've got to go. There's something more. God's got something more. There's something else. We've got to leave from this place. And she said, okay, I'm going to go. Wherever you're going, I'm going. I'm with you. I believe God spoke to you. I'm following. And so they leave and they come into Canaan. They traverse the land from the north to the south. They move around within it for a little while. And again, Sarah's so willing to go wherever Abraham is, is going to go. And then he says, no, it's not here. There's a famine here. This isn't what God, this isn't it. We've got to go. We've got to go to Egypt now. And she says, okay, I'm going to follow. I'm in it for wherever you're going to go, whatever you want to do. He says, I want you to lie. I want you to say that you're my sister so that it's well for our sake and we can survive. She says, okay, I'll do it. I'll do whatever it is. And you think about the amazingness of this woman and what is it that she saw in Abram that she was willing to go along in all of these things. 
And yet now she finds herself sold in the palace of a pharaoh, wondering what will become of her, of her marriage, of everything that she lived for up until this time. I can imagine what it would be like if there was a Calvary chapel in Egypt, or any church for that matter. And Sarah were to get leave and say, I just need to go for counseling. I need to talk to a pastor in this whole thing. Or I wonder what it would be like if Sarah just came off the street and came in here and talked to us and said, I need to talk. I've got marriage problems. And that happens. You know, we deal with those things. And so she comes in, and she doesn't have her husband with her. And we sit down, and we say, well, what's your situation? Tell me about what's going on. She says, well, it's my husband. Oh, yeah, of course. It's your husband. It's always the husband, right? Okay. What is it? Tell me about your husband. Oh, well, he's an amazing man. He's got this incredible faith. There's something in his eyes that it's as as though he can see into another world. It's like there's a call of heaven of the living God. And and when when he's with that God, there's something in him that's so alive, that's so amazing. It's so inspirational. I I would do anything for him. I would do anything with him. There's just something about him. He smells like another world. He's such an amazing man. Well, that sounds so good. You know, what's the problem? Well, he's just not acting like himself lately. There's something wrong with him. Something changed inside of him, and, and I, I just don't know how to deal with it. Well, well, what is it? Well, what is he doing? What happened? Well, he, he's asking me to do some things, some things I'm, I'm not entirely comfortable with. He's asking me to do things that go against my conscience and that go against God. He's asking me to be dishonest. Uh, okay, uh, all right, I, I understand. Is, is there more? Yeah, there, there's more. He's become extremely materialistic. All of a sudden, things that used to be of no value to him, now it's all about money. It's all about livestock. It's all about growing the business. It's all about the here and now. And where it used to be about God and his plan, now it's become about the world and this plan. Oh, okay, I guess I can understand that. He's he's under a lot of pressure. He's got a lot of people and mouths to feed. And I mean, it's kind of normal for this world. You know, I mean, can you see past it? Yeah, I could, I could see past it, but there's, there's more. What? What is it? You see, he, he wants me to go and live with another man. And he wants me to act interested. He wants me to tell this man that I'm single. He wants me to accept an engagement proposal from this man. Oh, wow, okay, this is getting a little weird. I mean, I might have to call in the senior pastor for this one. You know, this, is, this, is, this might be getting a little outside. She says, yes, it is. It's, it's so weird. It's so bad. But she says, you know, all of that is what it is. But, but the one thing that's probably bothering me more than anything else in all of this is that he's getting extremely rich through this whole thing, and he seems way more excited about everything that he's obtaining than he is about the fact that he's losing me in the process. That's what's breaking my heart. And I think Sarah is absolutely amazing in this story, and here's why. Because not only does she not seek counsel because she doesn't have a counselor to go to, but Abraham has literally put this woman in a place where she's in a position where she could very easily cheat on him. He put his wife in a position where she could have an affair for the sake of his own survival. He's also put her in a place where she might come to the sense of saying, you know what, I've got it better here in Pharaoh's harem than I do in the wanderings of Abram. Why don't I just go with this whole thing? I should just stay here. I mean, this is a secure life. I mean, I'm sick of moving and walking around from here to there and walking through the deserts, and why are we doing all of these things? It doesn't even make sense to me in the whole thing. Listen, guys. What Abraham is doing in this setting is extremely stupid. What he's doing is that he is putting materials, markets, and money in front of his marriage. He's making things that should not be a priority to be more important than the thing that is most important. He's putting even her security financially above her safety. And he's neglecting her feelings for the sake of their future. It's an extremely stupid thing that has been repeated over and over again throughout history. And Abraham will not be the last person to do this. It happens all the time. 
Guys, listen to me. If you lose your wife, you lose everything. I think the favorite part of my identity as a human being is when I see Nick and Georgia. That's my favorite thing to see. I love being identified by Nick and Georgia. When someone says Nick, and, and they go like this, and they say Nick and Georgia, oh, well, you know, there's a lot of Nicks. There's not a whole lot of Georgias. And one of my favorite things is being identified with those two names. I mean, I think one of our first wedding gifts that were given to us was one of those wood things that you hang on your door, and it just said welcome, and then it said Nick and Georgia on it. And I love that. I love seeing those names. Our email address is nickandgeorgia at hvc.rr.com. So you can write me later when I get into submission and you don't like what I say, you can know how to get in touch with me and the whole thing. But I love seeing that because it's, it's my favorite thing. It's just my wife is my favorite part of me. And sometimes I can be so stupid to take that for granted and to think that, well, I can just kind of put it on a shelf over here and take care of something that maybe has a higher priority. That's a dangerous thing to do. Because if you lose your spouse, you lose everything. You lose a part of your identity. You lose a part of your kids. You lose a part of your substance. You lose a part of God's plan, if not all of God's plan. Abraham, in this act of self-survival, is flirting with the destruction of your salvation. Do you realize that? If Sarah is defiled and the marriage breaks up, there is no plan of redemption. And here's my point. Is that when we do things that put our marriage at risk for whatever reason we put those things at risk... The ripple effects of those consequences can go way beyond, way beyond what we could ever perceive or think of. It's huge. It's hugely important that your marriage stay intact to the best of your ability. And I understand that there are complicated situations and things that happen in times it needs to end. But what Abraham is doing in this is the point. And he's being extremely foolish with a stewardship that God has given him over a relationship. Now, how does Sarah handle this that ultimately brings things around and makes things okay? How does she do it? How does she get Abraham back? She goes along with it. She goes into the harem of Pharaoh and she submits to the things that Abraham is asking of her to do. That's an amazing thing to me. Somewhere inside, Sarah knows that it's God's will for her not to be in Pharaoh's harem, not for Abram to be in Egypt, but it is his will for her to submit to Abraham's request in this situation in order to see things ultimately set right. And in this, Sarah becomes an example throughout all of the ages of how a wife is to deal with a foolish season that her husband is in. In 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter says this to Christian wives. He says, Likewise, you wives, be in subjection, that is, in submission, to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they also may without the word be won by the conversation or the lifestyle of the wives. So the situation that Peter is painting is where you have a Christian woman and a wayward husband. And Peter is saying that the solution to the situation, Christian woman with a wayward husband, is that you're to be in subjection to him and that you're to live as godly a life you can while being in submission to your husband so that if any obey not the word, they might be convinced or persuaded or dealt with through the lifestyle of the wife. Well, what's the lifestyle of the wife? He says in verse 2. He says, while they behold, that is, they observe, they watch, your chaste lifestyle coupled with fear, whose adorning, let it not be the outward adorning of the plating of hair, or wearing of gold, or putting on of apparel. That is, it's not your outward beauty that's going to win back your husband, though there's nothing wrong with that. We see that Sarah had that. But rather, let it be the hidden man of the heart in that which is incorruptible, even the ornament of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of a great price. Now watch this. 
For after this manner in the old time, the holy women also who trusted in God adorned themselves, being in subjection unto their own husbands, even as Sarah obeyed Abraham, a reference to our story tonight, calling him Lord, who's lowercase Lord, by the way, husbands don't get any ideas, like, I kind of like that, you know, whose daughters you are, as long as you do well and are not afraid with any amazement. So what is Peter telling us here that is Sarah's example in how to set things right in the family and in the home and with a wayward husband? Two things. Submission with devotion. Submission to your husband and devotion to God. And when those two things are coupled together, you're opening the door for God to begin to work and restore a situation. You say, yeah, that's great. That's a, that makes a great Bible story. It makes great talking points. But I'm sorry, Pastor, but you're painting with a broom. And you don't understand the situation that we're in and the thing that I'm being asked to submit to. He wants to take our entire savings and invest it in Bitcoin. What do you think of that? Does that sound like such a good idea to you? Or he wants to take our kids, these kids, this precious trust from God, and he wants to put them in daycare so that I can work. And I don't think that's a good idea. I don't agree. I can't let go. This is something that I'm passionate about. It's of God. I know this is what he wants, and yet he wants me to go a different way. And you're telling me that I should just submit? Yes. What? Why? How? What's the reason? What's the wisdom in all of that? Consider these things. Number one, God cares more about you, more about your husband, more about your future, more about your kids and your situation than you do. Guaranteed. God cares more about where you end up than you care about where you end up. That's number one. Number two, God has means of correcting things and fixing things that you and I don't have. Meaning that if we take things into our own hands, we become extremely limited in our ability to fix or change the circumstance that we're in. He has resources that we don't have. Number three, have you considered the possibility that maybe what he wants to do is God's perfect will for you and for your family. I'm not saying that it is, but is it possible that maybe it is? And number four, the Bible gives a promise, Christian wife, Christian woman, that it's through your submission that you're opening the door for God to resolve and work in the situation. And that's exactly what happens in our text here in Genesis. Sarah goes along out of submission, respect for Abraham, not compromising her devotion to God, which we see that she has. And in the process of it, God now has an open door to come in and move in the situation. See, when there's not submission in a complicated situation, when there's not this support structure that God calls for, it complicates things because now God has to fix two people, wherein before he only had to fix one people, me. <laughs> now he's got to work in two. When there's, now, when I'm saying, God, I don't agree, I've spoken my mind, I've given my peace, but he's persisting, and unto you I submit, Lord. Okay, hubby, whatever it is that you want to do, go for it, do it. Now I'm opening the door through my faith for God to do what he's going to do in the situation to resolve it. Now, let me just say, before I move on one step further, I realize and understand that there are circumstances in today's day and age, as there was in Abram's day and age, that are way more complicated than the illustrations or examples that I've brought out in, 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 by way of teaching this passage. And there are times when, yes, it is important to get further counsel from people that have wisdom. And there are times where there is wisdom from the Holy Spirit that he has to give to navigate carefully through circumstances and things that make it more complicated. So I'm not trying to be simplistic. 
But as a general principle, this is the way that Sarah saw things set right in her family. Notice what happens when God intervenes. It says in verse 17 that the Lord plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done unto me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I might have taken her to me to wife? Now, therefore, behold, take your wife, take her and go your way. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away and his wife and all that he had. God intervenes in the situation. He brings a plague upon Pharaoh's house, and thus he exposes Abraham, and he exposes the situation. And Abraham encounters great shame and great rebuke by a pagan king who's acting more moral than he is as a person of God. Abraham and Sarah are set free from that place and given great riches. And you think, well, Abraham sure got out of this one, didn't he? Did he? Understand this, Christian, and this is for everybody, is that the wheels of God's judgment turn slowly, but they grind thoroughly. You might think that you're getting away with something tonight, walking outside of God's will or walking in a way that's wayward according to his plan. You might think that you're getting away with it, but you never get away with it. Because God's up there laughing with Gabriel, seeing the curveball that's coming. And the answer is repent. Turn back now. The other issue in all of this is though Abraham gets his wife back and doesn't forfeit our salvation in the process of this stupidity, there are very real consequences that stay with Abram because of this. First of all, he's ashamed. He's ashamed before Egypt, ashamed before his people, ashamed before his wife. He has to bear the shame of this reproach because of what he did. It's also probably a very quiet walk home. What do you think? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you know that whole uh, sister thing. You know, I, I know, I mean, but let bygones be bygones and all, but... I'm sure Abram and Sarah had some things to discuss after all of that. A third consequence of Abram's in this whole thing is that he went home with a great deal of riches. You say, consequence? Wasn't that the goal? Wasn't that the whole idea? I mean, no, 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 it's a consequence. Because what we're going to see in our next study is that the wealth that he now has is more than what the land is able to bear and the riches that Abraham possesses now are going to cause problems for him because he won't be able to manage what he's got. God knows what we need. And when we have more or different or other than what that is, then that presents complications and problems within our lives. A fourth consequence is that with Sarai, back to Canaan is coming a servant girl named Hagar who's going to become a thorn in the side of Abraham, his family, and his descendants, even unto the present day. None of those consequences were foreseeable by Abram, and yet he experienced them nevertheless. No, none of us can ever foresee the things that our failures are going to bring into our lives, but yet those consequences stay with us even though there's forgiveness. Now, just four verses in chapter 13, and we're done. It's the best part of the story. If I leave you here, it's depressing, but watch what happens. It says that Abram went up out of Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him, into the south. And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold, and he went on his journeys from the south even to Bethel, unto the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Hai unto the place of the altar which he had made there at the first, and there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. Four things happen to Abram that close out this passage that make it a glorious story and a glorious ending. Number one, we're told there in verse one that Abram returned. The word in the New Testament is repent. That's what repent means. It means to turn. It's a word of direction. Abraham realized that he went the wrong way in a situation and he returned back to the place that he was supposed to be. He turned around. 
The second thing that we see is that it says that he and his wife returned. There was restoration in the marriage. Not only repentance, but restoration. She stayed with him in spite of his foolishness and his lack of priorities. And the great thing for Sarai is that she got her Abram back. The one that inspired her to leave Babylon and then leave Haran and then leave Canaan and now come back. She got that Abram back. At least if she didn't yet, she knows that she's gonna. Some people say that love is blind. Love isn't blind. Love sees more, but it's willing to focus on what's good. And certainly Sarai sees the failings of Abraham and his ability to do something really stupid. But her love for him allows her to see beyond that, to see something that's even greater. Aren't you thankful that that's the kind of love that God has towards us? I mean, he sees everything that we are, and yet he loves us anyways. The third thing that we see of Abram at the end of this trial is that he returned unto the place of the tent and the altar. And the third word, the R word, is reconsecration. He's repented. He's been restored to his wife. And now he reconsecrates his life to the Lord. He comes back to the place of the tent and the altar. And he got things right with God again. And he resumes the plan of God for his life again on the other side of this. And the fourth thing that we're told as an outcome of this trial that Abraham now comes through on the other side is that he was very rich. Now, yes, it says that he was rich in silver and in gold and in cattle and in livestock. But that's not the only way or the important way in which Abraham was enriched. It's not the physical, but the spiritual that enriched Abraham in all of this. Peter says that the trial of our faith is more precious than gold that perishes in the fire. The tests that we go through produce great riches and wealth in our life. You say, well, what are you talking about? What riches did Abraham receive spiritually on account of this trial? Well, first of all, he was set free from fear, set free from fear of failure, fear of famine, fear of being preserved. He's set free from that. He now realizes God's going to provide. He's also learned that his identity is not Abram and his riches, but his identity is Abram and Sarah. His marriage is brought to new dimensions because of this trial, this famine that came into his life. He's also been enriched by the blessing of God or learning that the blessing of God is of infinite greater value than the treasures of Egypt. The trial taught Abram that to be in the will of God is better than to have all of the possessions of the world. What an amazing truth that is when a person realizes that that's true. I want to be in his will. I don't care what I have. You give me the world out of his will? No, thank you. Give me a crumb of bread in his will? I'm good with that because at least I know I'm in a good place. And it was through this trial that Abram learned that that's the place I want to be. I want the blessing of God in my life, not the things of the world. And probably the greatest lesson that Abram learned in this, that he carried with him for the rest of his life, is that God does not need our help. Amen? (laughs) God doesn't need our help. When the trials and the situations come that are too heavy for us and we think that we need to help God out, he doesn't need our help. And you know how I know that? The simple words in this passage where it says, God plagued Pharaoh. If God can plague Pharaoh, then can't he provide in famine? He can. Abraham's place was not to take things into his hands, but to trust that if God led him into a particular place or position, that God was going to supply for him there and take care of him there. But Abraham learned invaluable lessons in this class. And so I ask you tonight, what trial, what set of trials do you find yourself going through? What required course does God have you in right now? It's to reveal motives, the depth of your commitment, 
It's to transform that as we see our weakness and his strength and his love in spite of our weakness, that we trust in him and rely on him instead of upon ourselves. It's to teach us the things that we need to know about him for our lives here and for our future in heaven. It serves a purpose. Maybe it's your marriage tonight. Maybe, husbands, there's some things on a long ride home that you need to talk over with your wife or wife to your husband to get things in the light. Maybe tonight there's a reconsecration that has to happen in the heart. There's a point where you went down a wrong direction or you started down a wrong path into a place that God didn't lead you, that God didn't command. And the altar is sitting there vacant and waiting in the place that God had called you. Turn back. Go back. Get right. Reconsecrate. Restore. Revive. Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you, Lord, that you give wisdom, that you teach us the right way. We thank you that we have an example, an advisor in this man, Abraham. And tonight, Lord, as we look at our lives through the lens of these scriptures, we ask, Lord, that you would give us insight and understanding. We ask that you would give us a clear vision, Lord, of where we are, whether in your will or out, and what we need to do to be where we're supposed to be in this season now. We lift up to you, Lord, where you've got us. And we pray that you would, as you did with Abraham, that you would bring us to the place we're to be. We pray for our marriages, our families, our children, our future, the call that you have. Oh, Lord, that you would show yourself strong and successful in all these things. And we ask that you would help us, Father. So draw us back to you.